Welcome to Mystic and Skeptic. In this week, we'll be discussing World Autism Day with Grace Cohn. She's an author and mother of a person with autism, and she wrote a book called Children of Autumn, Autism Here on Purpose, a book of teachings. And there she describes her metamorphosis as a result of doing everything in her power to help her daughter, Julianne, heal. Uh, welcome to the show, Ms. Grace. Thank you, David. Really honored to be here. Thank you so much. We met during the intentional community conversations. Uh, I know you give presentations about your book and your advocacy for uh, people with autism has also led you to building community. Tell us about the projects you're working on lately and uh, a little bit about your book. Uh, so many projects going on at the moment. Uh, I think one of the most exciting ones I think you're going to play at the very end of the of our podcast here today is music. So there's a lot of music going on. Um, a song that I co-wrote almost 20 years ago now is just sprouting. It's a long story. I'm not going to bore you with all the details of how that came about, but it's it's here now at this time, and it's called Stop and Change. And it does tie into my book, I believe, in the sense that the premise of the song really is about stop and change the divisiveness that's occurring in our in our society, really. And so one of the things that I believe these these people, these children with autism are here, but based on my experience, again, David, this is my experience, are here to teach us to be more loving beings. And so I talk a lot about that throughout the book. I talk about that in presentations. Uh, I will tell you when I got the the piece for the title Autism Here on Purpose. It came through in a dream. And I got this message in a dream, Autism Here on Purpose. And I was like, are you joking me? Like, are you kidding? But it was so right. I knew it, I knew I had to put it in as part of the title. And I was terrified to put that in because I thought, oh my God, every parent on this planet is going to kill me basically for this. Being a parent, I had a child who was a feces smear. I found logs of poo on my dining room table. I found walls and toys and drapes and carpets full of poo on a regular basis. I had a child nonverbal at the age of seven. So this is not a child who was highly functioning and we just did a little bit of work and then she changed. This was a child who was severely autistic and has now emerged and is uh, still on the autism spectrum for sure and vocal and um, very active in, in with people, loves people and that oxymoron of uh, people with autism apparently aren't supposed to care about other people. Julianne is my daughter's name. Love people and has people who love her. So, um, so music-wise, I'm working with Russell Tubbs. Been working together for the last four years. He's a professional musician out of New York. We're on the last song uh, of a, a musical that was written in 2019, and Premix has been helping me with the arrangements, so adding all the, the flutes and the violins and all the other, the orchestration uh, of the soundtrack, and 
we're on the very last song. So we're almost there and that's all been scored. And uh, the goal is, ultimate goal there, David, is that every single child on the planet would be able to participate in this musical. It's a musical for children and the musical came out of uh, my journey with Julianne. So that's what's on the hopper right now. I got to listen to your song that um, you developed with, um, with Mr. Marco Griggs and John Lehirondel. Um, tell me about your relationship with them and why did it take 20 years to put it together? Uh, well, I, I've known John for a long time. And basically, Marco Griggs is, a, in my opinion, a genius. He's a virtuoso violinist. Um, and him and John were very good friends. There was a couple of guys in Jasper who would just jam all the time and they would invite me to come out, but I had children, so I wouldn't actually come out for the jams. But one day John gave me this music and, uh, he said, here, here's some instrumental music, see what you can come up with around it. So I just played with it and came up with the lyrics and the um, melody line for stop and change. And we recorded it. And then basically, I honestly don't know. We just kind of, we all went our separate ways is what happened. We all got busy with our lives. Uh, my daughter, actually her, the feces smearing, that section of her life, that came out later. So when we recorded the song, she was probably around four years old, somewhere around there. And then feces smearing and all of that came out later so I was very focused on them and plus I was running um, I was working with my husband we had a theater company in Jasper so we were performing seven nights a week so it just kind of went to the side and then I got involved in other projects and so forth and then just about probably two months ago now I just got this little thought and I was like oh I wonder what ever happened to that song, Stop and Change. And I wonder if anybody has that song, because I certainly didn't have a recording of it anymore. So I contacted John, and I hadn't talked to him in a couple of years either. He's moved. He has three kids now, so he's busy. And lo and behold, he still had a copy of it. So it was amazing. And then it was to find Marco and uh, the elusive Marco. And nobody knew where he was. And just I pursued trying to find him every day. I would send a, a Facebook message to one of his friends and nobody knew where he was uh, or how to reach him. And then just coming out of a meditation one day, uh, my husband said, did you try 411? You know, up here in Canada, you can just dial 411 with the last name. And I thought, oh, simple dimple, try that. But no, no Marco Briggs. But I punched it in into my computer and actually an obituary came up for his mother. And on the obituary was a picture of the house that they lived in. And there is a tie in here to Children of Autumn, which is the name of my book. It's really been the, my life's work, David, is around Children of Autumn. I was given the song Children of Autumn before Julianne even arrived on the planet. And um, everything I do is around that now. And so Marco and I had talked about doing uh, the instrumental pieces around Children of Autumn many years ago. And I was actually at his place where his parents lived. And I met his parents, so I knew the house. And so there's his mother's obituary and there's the, the house. 
and there's the address. So right away, I wrote him a letter, snail mail, sent it off just with a prayer of please, please, please say yes, because of course I wanted his, uh, you know, he's a co-writer. And, and I really feel the song is primarily his essence coming through there. And it's just so brilliant. I just think it's fantastic that I just want the world to hear it. So I got a little email back from him just the other day saying, yes, I say yes, you can use the music. And I'm like, yes, awesome. Wonderful. Well, let's start from the beginning. I was living in in, uh, Tennessee and I went to the zoo and I was taking my one-year-old, I guess she was like three months old and my uh, three-year-old and I just happened to land on um, people with special abilities day. And being the dummy that I am, I, I was like really like taken aback. I was like, how common is it for children to have special abilities? Because it seemed like everybody in the zoo uh, had that. And, you know, you start getting uh, concerned, like, because knowing with my nephew who has autism, we didn't know until he was three or four. And then his mom was in denial until he was like five or six. So um, we were like, how common is this? And is it like some people that I know that say that they're the uh, star children? Uh, Like you said that they're giving us um, maybe a warning or uh, teaching us that uh, we need to be more in touch with nature or with God. Um, so let's talk about it from, from a scientific, scientific perspective, uh, from what you have experienced it. And then we can talk about it from, um, spiritual or mystical sense. Um, what, what do you know about autism and you don't hear autism, uh, being, um, manifested in, in young ladies as much as young boys. Um, what is, has been your experience from the medical and the mystical side? Okay, so my understanding actually, and again, you know, information, David, is changing daily, really, uh, about this. Um, But the studies that I looked at when I was really, you know, working with my daughter, so now she's seven years old, right? She's nonverbal, she's not toilet trained, she can't do a thing, she's a feces smear. I mean, what she could do is use her hands and watch TV and walk. She could do those things. she had been misdiagnosed originally at, at this time. We, we had taken her down to a hospital in Edmonton. She went through three days of testing. She was seen by many different um, specialists. And throughout the report, they, they all said, whether they were a fine motor skill uh, uh, therapist, whether they were a physiotherapist, whether they were a speech therapist, whether it was a pediatrician, they all looked at her and said, you know, even though she's doing this and even though she's doing that, and even though that's very within the spectrum of autism, we're not going to diagnose her with autism at this time. And at that particular time in Alberta, Canada, it was quite political about if you got a diagnosis for autism, you got funding. And if you didn't have a diagnosis for autism, you didn't get funding. So that has all changed now, thankfully, you know, and we ended up going back to the same pediatrician who originally diagnosed her. The first time she spent with us, she spent 10 minutes. The second time she spent an hour and a half. 
And she had had all kinds of training now, new training on what really is autism and how do you diagnose it. And so the medical profession has for sure made gains. You know, Julianne is now 26 years old. So we're, we're going back here when I'm talking about this 20 years ago. Um, so the medical profession for sure has way more diagnostic tools. They're able to, because there's such a variance with each individual child. And so to kind of put them in a, a cookie cutter um, brand them is challenging because they are still unique, even though they have, you know, they're on the spectrum. So medically, um, you know, that was our first experience for sure there. Then I would say we did a lot of work with her and this was under the, uh, we worked with a fellow named Jonathan Alderson and he has a company called IMTI. So he introduced a lot of different ideas into our world, things around diet, a lot of studies that we did around Julianne's liver, her genetics. We did studies on her bowels. We did studies on her gut health. We did a lot of studies to see what was going on. And again, if you look at the studies that came out, you know, a number of years ago, there is this idea that a lot of children with autism have an issue with their liver. A lot of children with autism have an issue with their gut health. And for sure, I've noticed, again, I can only speak from my experience with Julianne. So my grapes of wrath has been by really working with her gut and her gut health, we started to see things change for her. So we started to see much more eye contact. We started to see language. We started to hear language. We started to see interaction. So that was one piece was that the other thing that we started to do with her was also chiropractic care. So we started to visit with the chiropractor here in Jasper and Julianne's good friends with him now. And that also seemed to help. And then a third thing we did, which uh, is quite a story in itself, how that came about, but we were, we went to Mexico for a number of visits and we did hyperbaric oxygen treatment therapy with her. And I don't know if you're familiar with hyperbaric oxygen therapy, but it, again, this was recommended from a medical doctor in Calgary that I then saw. And he was the first person to mention to me, you know, her brain's on fire. Like it's the inflammation is, is really affecting her brain. And if you bring that down, if you can bring that inflammation down, you're going to see a change in your daughter. So we did, we did a lot of hyperbaric chamber uh, work with her. And again, the nervous system really started to calm down. Julianne had a lot of issues when she was younger, behavioral issues. We used to call her tiger because she would just be like an animal. Like she just lunged at you. She took skin out of me. She couldn't sleep, the poor kid. I mean, I'd hold the door shut and she'd scream herself to sleep and then she'd fall asleep on the, uh, on the floor and I'd put her into the bed. But her nervous system was just firing, you know, it was just out of control. So I don't know if that answers your question, but that's kind of what I can offer at this time. Thank you. And um, I was um, very interested in um, those report on um, 
the public media about a young lady who had um, some strange phenomenon that happened to her like in her uh, early 20s. She started having these um, rage episodes where she would get um, super violent and aggressive towards her family. And um, it made me think of all these uh, stories in the Bible or in the New Testament or in other traditions where they assume that someone's demon possessed or that someone is, uh, you know, being burdened by, by a spirit. And then um, even in the new, in the new Testament, they, they called uh, someone with seizures, um, you know, having an unclean spirit. So in their, in their ignorance or lack of scientific knowledge, uh, people with uh, problems were considered to be uh, under the influence of something. And then she found out that her brain was inflamed and that that's what was causing this aggressive behavior. And uh, I just wonder about the countless uh, women and children throughout history who have been misdiagnosed by spiritual folks and assume the worst of because they don't know uh, what's happening. And my sister, uh, who has a, a child with very extreme uh, autism or or he might not be properly diagnosed, diagnosed himself. She gets dirty looks. She gets mistreatment from a lot of other parents. And she's been kicked out of places because her son, um, you know, runs into traffic or uh, screams and howls. And so the, the trauma that comes from being judged and misjudged and, and mistreated um, as you're trying to figure out how to help your child is uh, unbelievable. Uh, did you have any of those experiences as you were trying to help her? Oh yeah, oh yeah. That that's a you know, that's a big part of why I actually do what I do because I have this vision of a mother who really needs to hear what I have to say. You know, that's why I'm here because uh, it, it for sure it's absolutely challenging. I've had I had so many people even in this town. Even when you when you're working to help your child, you have people talking about you behind your back who are like, oh my God, you know, look what they're doing. They're putting this child in blah, 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 blah. And there's all this, you know, misinformation. They don't even come and ask you, what are you exactly doing? You know, I was in a school, so I had to obviously give a presentation to the principal of the school and the teacher of Julianne to propose a, a solution to, I wanted my child to have an education, for example, and it wasn't working in the classroom. So, you know, I learned from the Options Institute, which is in the States, and they have an amazing program going for uh, children with autism called the Sunrise Program. And I learned, you know, the best place for her ultimately is actually in a place where there's no stimulus, like where there's, because these children are very sensory, they're very sensitive, they're very extremely sensitive people, David. So they need, and they can't, you know, they can't, um, like they can't factor out all the different senses. So everything's coming at them at once. And so they hear everything, they see everything. They, they can, some of the kids are really, really sensitive to touch. Um, so what I wanted for my daughter was, uh, I wanted her own little space that she could work one-on-one -on -one with a therapist and learn. I wanted her to learn how to read. I wanted her to learn how to write. I wanted her to have, you know, all those things. So, but, and yes, you know, we did a presentation and the principal was on board and Julianne made gains. This is a person who was seven years old who didn't speak 
And in the first week, first month that we worked with her, she said a thousand words. So I was flying. I was like, oh my God, my child speaks. It's a miracle, right? So um, absolutely, you know, have been criticized enormously. Julianne, again, I'm not sure uh, what your nephew is like, but what Julianne doesn't seem to understand is social boundaries. That's a big piece for her. So we would be out in places and if people had left their drinks, let's say on a table, she'd just go up and help herself. Actually, I have a funny story. We were in Paris. So I had worked with her now for many years. Okay, so she was, she was much more functioning. So I actually took her on a trip and, and she has a very big love for Vincent van Gogh. So I took her to France and uh, we arrived in France, you know, long, it's a long trip, obviously from Canada. We drove, we, we flew first of all to Germany and then we drove from Germany to France. So it was like a 13 hour drive. Then we go out and we go for dinner and we walk into this sushi restaurant and I'd heard all this, you know, how there's all these beliefs about all these different people and all these different cultures. And I'd heard that in Paris, you better be careful because they're going to just be like, oh my God, you know, what are you doing? And so much, this was the information I got was that there was going to be a lot of judgment. Julianne walked up to a complete stranger couple's table, put her hand right into their food, their sushi, helped herself. She was starving. So she just helped herself. I was horrified. I was like, oh my God, they're going to kick me out of here. And they literally handed her the plate of food. And for me, David, it was, again, another miracle of all these people who said all these Parisians were going to be uptight and wrong, wrong, misperception, incorrect information. But again, you feel that anxiety as a parent where you feel like everybody's going to turn on you and, and, what, and they're going to blame you for it. And of course, there is history of that. Like if you look at the history of mothers who have had autistic children, they were called refrigerator moms. I don't know if you've ever heard that term, but the history of autism is that the mothers who had autistic kids, they blamed the mothers. They said the mothers were cold, obviously. And it was because of these mothers' coldness that that's why these children uh, are the way they are. In my experience of going to places like the Options Institute and being surrounded by parents who have a child with autism. And there at the Options Institute, people come from literally all over the world. Uh, everyone I met was amazing. And everyone I want, met wanted the best for their child. And so, you know, these are myths. These are myths that, um, that, uh, that unfortunately existed at some point because I know uh, certainly for myself, absolutely challenging, absolutely, um, you know, so much judgment because again, I don't know what your nephew looks like, but in Julianne's case, she looks typical. So if you just look at her, you would be, you would not know that there's something, that there is something different, that she's not typical. So people, again, make those uh, judgments that, oh, wow, this child's out of control and the parent's not able to take care of them and, and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So you do have to develop for sure a thick skin. And that's part of the training I give to parents is resiliency training, because I literally got to a point where 
I could walk around and be like, you know what? I know that I'm doing the best I can for my daughter. I know that she's a good person. And if people want to judge us, not my problem. You know what I mean? I will forgive them. Like from a biblical point of view, then I will forgive them. So that's, that's how I've dealt with it basically. But, um, the the challenge with the child having um an effect that looks like there is no um concerns is is what we have with my nephew he's 15 he's tall he's you know big guy and my sister had to buy him a shirt that says autistic so he doesn't get shot by the police and i i never need uh thought that we would be in that place. My, my dad was concerned because he could tell that he was very strong and that since people are not able to tell that, that he has um, a, a special ability that that would be a problem. But um, how, how do you manage that? Like that reality is it's almost like, you know, that conversation uh, that African-Americans have to have with their sons, like you are going to be a target if people misjudge you or assume that what you're doing is dangerous. How do you manage that as a family? I think, I think that's where the community piece comes in. I think that's really how that segued into that for me is making sure that primarily she's with people that love her and um, understand her for sure. And that she's just in an environment where those issues are very limited. And if she's in a situation where there's a possibility of harassment or anything negative, um, that there's somebody with her, right? That there's somebody with her. Because again, in my daughter's case, unfortunately, given all the craziness that's going on in North America with children and, and child abductions and so on, she's a very attractive young woman too. So I really, I, I make sure that there's somebody with her. That's how I deal with it. And then speaking about the mystical component, uh, I thought it was beautiful when you said that um, they're, they're here to teach us compassion, to teach us um, love. Um, and my work in, in pediatric and adult hospice, I've seen a lot of families come to that determination that instead of seeing, feeling as uh, punished by God or feeling that they were given a, a bad hand um, and they're um, you know, victimized by the circumstances, they feel that um, it's an opportunity for, for love, for compassion. Some families even say that they were picked especially for the purpose of taking care of someone with an illness. And then what I started to consider is that if you think about it from a uh, monotheistic perspective, um, the idea of someone having limitations or, um, you know, now you call them special abilities, is that they are in tune with the divine, that they have, uh, they don't have all those uh, filters and walls and things that get in the way of us reaching our fuller self, that they are being vulnerable is actually a blessing. And then in the Middle East, they say that whoever takes care of someone who's sick actually gets a blessing from God. So they're almost like angelic beings that uh, teaches uh, compassion. And in the Catholic families, they see a lot of the suffering as redemptive. Uh, so I've been taught a lot from families that are 
caregivers and you know you want to uh embrace that but sometimes you wonder if it's um almost like um wishful thinking or them trying to process their grief in a positive way but what's wrong with that like i i think that it's all about how you take uh situations and you can always go in a destructive way and in a non-supportive way so for people to find meaning in their in their struggles is a, is a beautiful thing mm -hmm. yeah absolutely i um i did a lot of presentations prior to covid where i actually bring up victor frankel if you're familiar with his work so he was a holocaust survivor and you just tweaked me to to think of him because when you said life meaning so that was a big part of his uh experience in auschwitz was he came to this realization that life for whatever reason was asking this the situation that he was in of of him and so when he came out of auschwitz i don't know if you know the story but he basically made it his life's work to educate people that you know your life's meaning is going to come out of your life you know and and so with julianne um absolutely i went through those stages david that you talked about with the grief with the anger i mean i i grew up in a very religious household i was confirmed i went to sunday school you know i know a lot about the bible and so certainly there were times when i was you know talking to god saying what are you doing to me here like what is this you know because she would make gains particularly in the toileting area, which is a very button-pushing area for most of us. Uh, she'd make gains, and then she'd slip back. And then she'd make gains, and then she'd slip back. And this was going on. So I took it personally for quite a long time, and I'd have these conversations. And they weren't always pretty conversations. I wasn't always the most loving person. But I came to this realization at some point where I was like, you know what? There's no man sitting on a cloud uh, going, I'm going to mess up Grace's life right now. I'm going to make her daughter, uh, uh, I'm going to make her go backwards. I'm going to you know, make her worse than she was. I, I had to break through that concept of consciousness that the, the, the idea of God that, that I had and wherever I got that from was not working for me and was incorrect. And that God, so now uh, I've been studying the Course in Miracles. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but I've been, I've been studying that for 29 years, actually. So I started studying that before Julianne even arrived on the planet. And my understanding now of God is all the love that exists. That's God. All the love, not in our universe, in all the universes, in all the galaxies, that's God. So in the Course of Miracles also is this idea that miracles are possible, right? That there, there's a thought form that I'm entitled to miracles. That's one of the thought forms that you study if you go through the workbook. And what I can tell you from working with my daughter intensely uh, is absolutely miracles have happened. I mean, this, this is a child who was nonverbal at seven years old. This was a child who, again, like I said earlier, could basically do nothing, who now reads, who can downhill ski, who can ride a bike, who can sit on a computer and work with that, who 
can sing. This was my dream when I was at the Options Institute that because I love to sing, uh, that we would sing together. She knows more lyrics, David, than anyone you would know. I mean, she can, you name it. Bob Marley's one of her favorite artists. She'll sing every word of every song and she knows it all, right? So she, there's been, I mean, there's just too many miracles to even talk about. The, the, but what I can tell you is absolutely miracles can happen and I've witnessed them many, many times. So yes, that they, you, don't, you don't just sit back and, and eat bonbons and go, okay, Jules, you know, go do a miracle for me, start talking. No, it was a lot of work. There was a lot of uh, effort that went into that, a lot of perseverance, a lot of patience, a lot of compassion, a lot of imagination, tons of flexibility, and it paid off, right? Because now we have this being who can communicate and can and now actually david it's really fascinating because people want to listen to her because when she decides she wants to share some really profound information she will and people literally stop in their tracks and, and lean in to what is she talking about now not always but you know everyone who's worked with her and there's over 40 people who have been on the team and i called it the miracle in motion team has had that experience with her where, where she has said something so poignant to them, specific, that they, they're like shaken out of their skin almost. You know, so there, there's something going on here. I like what you said about um, the mystical, you wanted, you wanted me to speak about the mystical a little bit. And I want to tie it in also to the new science, what they're finding. So I recently was uh, given a book to read called a stroke I believe it's called a stroke of insight and I'm going to double check that for you and maybe we can put in the credits but it was written by a woman who is a brain specialist and she is a Harvard uh, professor and she basically the storyline is she had a stroke and she knew so much about strokes that as the stroke was happening she was aware of how her brain was shutting shutting down and so she was uh, only in the right side of her brain for eight years, okay? And, and she talks about that right side of the brain as this amazing place of presentness, of connection to source, call it whatever you want, connection to compassion, empathy, joy. And she she realized, wow, like this side of the brain. So in our biology, we can have this really connection to presentness. And, uh, and, and that's, I have a woman who works with Julianne using a, a, a protocol by a doctor named uh, Chickley's and they work with the brain actually. He's um, uh, yeah. So they work with the brain and um what the woman who works with Julianne has said, she's so active in the right side of her brain. She said, I've never felt a brain like this, where it's just so right side because it's so present. It's so loving. It's so compassionate. The, what we did when we were working with her and continue to work with her, because we're always moving her forward, always more, always more, is making that bridge 
to the left side of the brain, right? So I want to give you an example of, it took us, for example, two and a half years of every day, David, working with her in a special playroom that we created that we learned how to do at the Options Institute. We learned one of the things we had as a goal was how to recognize the numbers one through five. That's it. Symbolically, one, two, three, four, five. Two and a half years we spent every day working on that. She finally got it after two and a half years. But this was that, you know, I, I think of it as a highway that we were building, building, building from the right side to the left. And so that that continuous information could go back and forth. The miracle there was uh, after we celebrated and after I went through a moment of, oh my God, it's going to be another two and a half years of, of five to 10. But this is why I say autism here on purpose. She taught me how to be present. Instead of thinking about the future, thinking about the past, it was like every single day that we went into the playroom, we were present just with the goal that we had, just for that day, the next day, the next day, the next day. And the miracle was this. A week later, she had five to 10. A week later, 10 to 20. A week later, 20 to 30. So the highway, the two and a half years that we chipped away, chipped away, chipped away, built this highway. If we wouldn't have done that, when that happened, I went, oh my God, think of all the people that we give up on. Think of all the people, whether they have autism or any special needs. I don't care what it is. And we just say, forget it. They're never going to learn. They're, we know the brain is plastic. We know, we know from people like Deepak Chopra, the brain is constantly, every part of our body is recalibrating itself. Every, my nose isn't the same nose that I had six months ago. Our cells are rejuvenating. And thankfully, I had heard Deepak Chopra talk about that when my son was two. So he's going to be 30. So I heard that 28 years ago. So that was a blessing for me to, to give me a glimmer, a glimmer of hope that my daughter could change. So these are some of my thoughts. No, you give us so much uh, hope and, and understanding. Um, what happened to us is that when we were concerned about the possibility of my nephew having uh, this uh, special need and my family not being very open to uh, providing him support because the, the quicker you get them support, the quicker you can kind of steer them in the right direction. Uh, we saw a documentary on HBO that had a young lady who had three sitters and I guess her family was wealthy or something, but she was able to go to college by having someone redirecting her throughout the day. And we, we started thinking, well, what about the people that don't have any resources? What about the people that have, um, you know, parents with other kids and a lot of responsibilities? What do you do? Uh, do you hand them over to the state? Do you uh, create uh, an amazing community like the one you've created? Like what resources are available? And my sister moved to Florida where they have a lot of support for people with health concerns. And it's mm -hmm. like a state-based uh, you know, services. And I hear the same thing from California, but here in Texas, you're on your own. So our friend who was part of the same birth class uh, and she had one of the only boys, he has um, 
kind of low spectrum or um and she she has to pay out of pocket to get him therapy so um what do people do and have you had families come to you during your presentation and say i would love to to do the same stuff but we just don't have the ability to do it so totally understand so many points of what you said there so i want to start with the biological family so i went through that as well where my biological family and they're they're passed on now my parents had a really hard time and so i think for a lot of grandparents maybe and not all for sure uh, but even partners husbands wives i've seen both where there's something in the child that is affecting them so deeply that they can't even almost deal with it so they want to just blame the parent it's something that you must have done you're doing wrong and so there's there's no or little support okay so i understood that so i lived that what eventually happened for me was i created a network of volunteers david so this was there was no payment originally right it was it, it was an opportunity for them to learn something uh and really truly the, the the payback was i believe that when they saw her accomplish things there was two paybacks actually one was this idea that things can change, things can change. So people literally witnessed that with their eyes and, and we're like, wow, you know, here's a person who can't speak and is now speaking. That's amazing, right? Here's a person who, you know, couldn't print her name and is now printing her name. Here's a person, you know, many things that she did, right? So they saw that. The other thing that was really fascinating for people when they volunteered was they also realized how grateful they were for the capacities that they had. And this is also part of why I say it's autism here on purpose. So we take so much of what we can do for granted. Oh my God, you know, we tie our shoelaces and we're not even present. We're all the, already in our vehicles, we're down the street, we're already at our next meeting or whatever. When we worked with Julianne and every person worked with her the same way, because we all had the same exact way to teach her something. So let's say we were teaching her how to tie her shoelaces. We had this little game that we taught her. And to this day, she still remembers it. It's going to the train station, then the post office, under the bridge, tighten it. There's a balloon, da, 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 da. So we all did the same exact movements with the same story. And when you start doing that, we realized, wow, this is a little bit complicated. Like, look at this, right? But she made us get into our bodies, like, and realize how amazing our hands are and our brains together. And whether it was doing up a zipper, whether it was doing up a button, whether it was jumping forward, these were all things she couldn't do at one point. Not to mention, you know, all the other zillions of things we do. So there was this appreciation that I used to host a dinner once a week to start with, and then it was every other week. This is how I paid the people. And we would talk about the progress Julianne made and how much more eye contact she was making, how much more interaction she was making, if there was any interaction on her own accord where, you know, she was just 
saying to us, hey, I want to interact with you. Um, and, and once in a while, I would ask people, what have you learned from Julianne? And everyone, there was this gratitude of, wow, like, I'm pretty awesome. You know, like me as a human is quite the machine. And, uh, and I think for, if I could speak for everybody that worked with her, that was such a big gift, you know, and unfortunately we have to remind ourselves of that sometimes it's, it's, we are, you know, we're, we're incredible beings. Like we really are walking around miracles, you know? And so, so that was one thing. So that was one thing. Then like you suggested with your uh, sister moving for sure, I would move if I had to, I'm in Alberta and Alberta was very generous once they changed uh, that requirement that you had to be diagnosed with auti autism to get funding. They made it available to all children with special needs. Then, you know, you still had to show that your child needed funding and so forth. And you had to be accountable, obviously. Um, but there was definitely funding in Alberta. And so that's why I stayed here. My family is in Ontario. They across the country, basically. And they wanted me to come back. And I was like, no, there's no funding there. So I would encourage people to move wherever, you know, if that's, if, if, if that's what you have to do, do that, you know. Um, again, I go back to the idea that autism isn't easy. I'm not saying that. I'm saying autism is here on purpose, but it does challenge you like nothing I've ever seen. Uh, so yeah, maybe uprooting yourself, leaving your friends and family behind. You know, we did that when we first came out to Jasper from Toronto. We did that because we were running a theater company. This was long before Julianne, we knew she had autism. She was two years old and there was, she was just nonverbal. And we just, her, her dad was a late bloomer. Einstein was a late bloomer uh, as far as verbal, his verbosity went. So I wasn't worried about it you know um but we left our families we left our home and and it was challenging i understand that and we cried a lot of tears getting on that train and so on and you're not sure what you're walking into and you don't know if the place you're moving to is if you're going to you know build build roots there um so all these unknowns that you have to step into with a child with autism if you want to this is the choice you have. For me, I was very passionate about doing everything I could to, I, I wanted her, I just had this fire. I don't know why, David, but it was to do everything I could to bring her to a level that, that at least I was happy with and at least confident that she was, that she wasn't suffering, you know, like that, that was a big piece. Like I, I see her now, she lives in Calgary with her dad and, and she's happy. Like she's a happy person. She's still, we're still working. We still have goals, but there's this, she sleeps at night. She, you know, she's much more happy in her body. Um, she has tons of people who love her. She's, she loves music. She, you know, so there's, she loves to read. Like there, she loves nature. Um, so, you know, uh, it's challenging for sure. Um, but to me, I, I often go back to Nietzsche's idea of, you know, where there's a will, there's a way. So yes, the other thing, oh my God, I have to share here is, yeah, like I 
took my ego out of the situation too. I, long before we had crowdfunding, I basically was doing that in the sense of I would write a letter to every single person I knew and I would ask for money. And I will tell you, that was uncomfortable action. Like as Tony Robbins would say, I did not want to do that. That was never supposed to be part of my life. Was basically, I called it sophisticated begging. Like that was not how my life was supposed to go. But it was either I do that or I had a full-time job and worked and then I couldn't work with her and the team, which was a full-time job, you know? So I did that and I understand that. That's not, that's hard. It's hard to put your ego aside and say, you know what? I'm literally asking you for money. Can you give me some money so I can continue this program with my, with my daughter? But again, David, oh my God, you know, it was incredible. The amount of outpouring that I got, the amount of love, people that I was afraid to ask, they would, they would blow me away. They'd give like $600, you know, and I was like, oh my God, I almost didn't even ask them. And so this, there's this real lesson for me about letting go of persona, letting go of, of the ego, uh, um, so many pieces, so many pieces that, uh, again, that's why I say autism here on purpose, because if anything, you know, as much as we helped her uh, live a better life now, for sure, she affected us uh, and, uh, and me for sure. And I'm, I'm a very different person than I, uh, than I would have been had I not had her. I, I know that for sure. So that, that's the blessing, you know. And, and I like myself who I am because I'm a kind person. I care about things. I care about our world. I care about nature. I do believe miracles are possible. I do believe change is possible. And it, it doesn't even have to be for someone with special needs. All of us are changing and have things we want to change and, and, and grow into and, you know, behaviors we want to stop. So it's for all of us. And, and that's the biggest thing too, is she was a mirror to me. You know, she, I, I like to talk about the word autism as awe, A-W-E, tis them. And it's this idea of a mirror that she literally made me look at myself in a different way that, you know, mom, you're awesome. Like, don't you see that you're awesome? You know, we spend so much time, David, being, you know, thinking that we're not good enough. We're not this enough. We're not rich enough. We're not, you know, whatever enough. Like, we're just never enough. I'm not thin enough. I'm not strong enough. I'm not whatever. I don't have enough Facebook friends. I don't, my, you know, whatever, right? And this child, just by being in her presence and working with her helped me realize, no, you're awesome, you know, and you're awesome. And we're all awesome. Actually, that's the truth. Well, I appreciate you um, giving us a, a more human definition of, of miracles because one of our biggest challenges when I worked in palliative care was that I'll be talking about getting in touch with reality and the nature of illnesses and the mysteries of life. And then a doctor will walk in and say, well, God can always do a miracle. And I'm like, stop giving people false hope that their person is going to get cured. And usually with someone who, was, who had a terminal illness, 
and then they would bring up God and they would bring up, you know, one in a billion situations. And I was like, the whole point of a miracle is that it never happens or when it happens, it's a miracle. It's something out of the ordinary. But the more that I've been working with people who are dying, the more you become conscious of everything we do is a miracle. Like you were saying that uh, waking up in the morning, having the ability to breathe, the ability to talk, to eat, um, you know, there's people that are so debilitated that they're not able to um, do most of the stuff. And, but they still have some type of consciousness and some type of, um, you know, memories and, and the warmth of their hand and their, their love that they feel from others or that they give away. So every single thing that, that we experience in this life has a special component to it. So if you have a broad definition of miracles, where it's like, um, we don't know how this stuff uh, came about. We don't know. Um, we might, through the natural process, able to understand some things, but there are so many other things like synapses and love and, and a sense of peace when the world's in chaos. There's so many things that are mystical and, and magical that uh, if you close yourself off from that, and we live in a very cynical society, where um, I'm afraid we're like heading towards, uh, I don't know, totalitarianism or utilitarianism, where unless someone serves a purpose for for others, they they have no worth, and and where everything is so disposable, people are disposable, and everything is a commodity, and it worries me that um, if we don't support the, the people like you who are um, giving meaning and, and, and reminding us of how important every single human being is and everybody has those, those special uniqueness that we turn into um, a very careless society and a, and a very dismissive. Um, so we have to pull together. We have to find uh, the ability to, to take care of those that need us and, and do it for them, not like, I believe that you can't love others unless you love yourself and that there's nothing wrong with getting a reward in the sense of fulfillment. But um, a lot of times people um, either have a martyr mentality where they just give themselves fully and they die in the process or they have, um, uh, unless I get something out of this, why am I even bothering? So it's a balance to be able to find that uh, healthy relationship and healthy um, you know, they talk a lot about refilling your cup and you can't help anyone unless you have um, the, the love and the strength that you need. So um, tell us about your, your desire to build a community and what would a, a community look like from all the things you've learned from your experience with Julianne? Uh, well, I mean, I, I feel like we've already, there is a community already. Um, there's many communities actually that are interlocking with each other. That's how I feel from my personal experience with Julianne. I always thought that we would be building a, an actual community and, and we would live there. And that still might happen. What's happening now is there's a lot of different friends of mine that I've met through Julianne, through working with Julianne. Um, are starting those little communities all over the place. And I'm kind of like a weaver person where I'm involved in all of them uh, and then doing all the work 
that I, I know I have to get done. I, I just want to share a thought that I had, David, on something you talked about there about filling your cup. And that's something that I'm building right now is a community for women, particularly, and it's no offense to men, but it's just, um, it's, it's, it's a community for women who need that resiliency training, that need uh, ways to fill their cup. Because I learned that through Julianne. If I didn't take care of myself, if I wasn't full, I was actually no good to her, never mind my other son, who also I love just as much, you know? So there's that, that also is a challenge too for parents who have more than one child. You know, I never wanted my son to suffer because he had a, a sister with autism. That, that's not fair. That's not fair to him either, right? So you're juggling a, lo a lot of things there. But so to, to manage all of that, I really had to learn exactly what you said martyrdom is done forget about it you can't do it it's not going to work you're going to burn out and then what you know then who's going to take care of these guys so you got to take care of yourself and then you know the rest is is it will work and it did work it did work like that so i just wanted to touch on that um my ideal community uh, would definitely be one. And, and I do see it again. Like I say, I was just at an event recently in Calgary where my daughter was welcome. She was, uh, it was a birthday party and people were so happy with, and so comfortable with her being there in her way, like just standing up, doing what she wanted to do, singing, moving around, going up to people, giving them a hug. Again, they, you know, they know her, so they're comfortable with that. Um, my ideal community would be, would be one where we aren't so, like you said, not so, um, we're not so judgmental about, you know, making sure that, you know, I'm giving you this, so now you have to give me that, and it has to exactly line up on a monetary level. You know, we all have gifts. So um, if you're good, like Julianne's great at just filling a space these days with love and sound. She'll sing your face off, you know, and people love that because it just brings this joy to the room. So that's what she does. That's what she brings. Um, and so, and and also, she also brings this trust that I'm going to be taken care of. Like, she, she never seems to worry. And we've talk, talked about this amongst our family, is that I'm, I'm fine. This is the message she broadcasts. I'm fine. I'm being fed. I'm being taken care of. Look, I'm safe. All is well. So this is what, what she puts out there. Um, other people have you know, their gifts, whatever they, whatever they're, I believe everybody, I have a very Steiner, I don't know if you know who Ru Rudolf Steiner is, but he was a great mind. He started the, um, he coined the term biodynamic farming. He started Waldorf schools, the idea behind Waldorf schools. Uh, very brilliant man. Anyways, he believed that everybody comes here with a purpose like a seed that they're already seeded with that purpose of what they're here to bring to the planet. And so in a Waldorf school, you would, you would have the same teacher for eight years because he or she 
would just be watching you, David. What is David about? Who is David? What is he here to bring to this earth? You know, and they would really nurture that seed and, and allow that in you to blossom, right? I went to school with, with, uh, with a person in university who literally thought she was stupid because she didn't do well in the course she was in. Why? Because she's actually a healer. That's what she is. And until she found her way into, a, by luck, thank God, uh, a, a supplement shop, and then they put her through a course through the naturopathic college and all this. Oh my God. Like we were all blown away because, because she believed she wasn't that bright. We did too. And now she was being nourished and nurtured and watered in a whole different environment that was believing of her skills and talents. And we saw this woman literally blossom. It was incredible. So, you know, community where that space is allowed to, to blossom, to be, to add in, my gift is this, this is what I love to do. This is what I can offer. And, and then the next person is like, yeah, this is what I like to do. This is what I can offer. And that, you know, there's still uh, a cooperation. There has to be a governance model. I've looked a lot at uh, a governance model called sociocracy. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's a circular it's a round table, basically, where everyone in the circle has a voice. Uh, everyone has to have uh, no objections to a proposal. And so it's a group think. It's where everyone has a voice, even if you're a shy person, even if you're a person who, you know, may not feel comfortable speaking out loud, you have a voice. And, and I know people personally like that who appreciate that because they want to speak. They want to be part of something. So that would be my, I guess, ideal community. We want to thank you for your time. I know that um, it's, um, it's an ongoing process to, to find our path and to find the connections that we need. And when we think of um, the, the challenge that I had with intentional communities, uh, we lived at, at the farm intentional community for two years. And um, is that there, they get separated from the greater, um, you know, cities and, and, you know, culture, and they become a culture on itself. And for me, it's like, how do you impact the culture that is already there? How do you um, become a, a, like a, someone who's, who creates change? So I believe that uh, being part of greater society is very important. And then without voices like yours, we, um, we miss out of uh, the wisdom that someone uh, can share through their struggles, through their suffering, through their challenges. And uh, utopian societies have their own challenges and sometimes um, issues get swept under the rug because they still have this uh, idealistic um, thing they wanna keep. So it's almost like um, with the Catholic church and big institutions like they have like a face they want to show to the world and then all the problems get pushed down. And the only way that you grow is through facing your, your problems and finding creative solutions and working together uh, to achieve them. So uh, for last question, have you experienced in the, 
special needs community, uh, things like that. Like, is there like a orthodoxy on how do you help uh, children and, and adults with these challenges? And if you don't do it a certain way, uh, there's a problem with you. And even among people who are hippies or alternative thinkers, sometimes someone who's a little too square or a little too traditional in education or psychology or something like that gets uh, tossed aside. It's like they're holding us back. They're not allowing us to thrive. Um, or is it eclectic where everybody can pursue their own path and there is no judgments and no um, clicks? I wish there was no judgments. I think, again, that uh, when we started this conversation, that's been a big piece for me and particularly around COVID, you know, the last two years, we've all witnessed so much division. Oh my God, it doesn't matter where you look, there's division in so many areas. And for me, that in itself is, uh, is, um, is, a, is an alert light that's going out saying emergency, emergency, because I do believe that, you know, at the core, we're all humans. And so what I found in my search, and I write about it in my book, is that, and this is long before COVID even started, is for every idea that you would have over here on something to do for your special needs child, there was another juxtaposed idea that said, no, don't do that. That's bad. That, that you know, so so in the book that I wrote, I basically encourage parents to do your research. You know, uh, I like the, the title of your podcast because I'm definitely open to mysticism, but also I'm a skeptic. So if people tell me things and it doesn't feel right in my body, I'm not going to do it or I'm going to look, I'm going to, I'm going to do the research. And so you have to do your own research and then you have to make your own decision. You know, a lot of people would have said to me uh, with the work that I did with the Sunrise program that it was wrong, that it was it was it was not something I should have been doing with Julianne. Um, again, you have these debates about integration or not. Right. And uh, Julianne always had kids, but we organized that. We had children playdates come and work with her as a, as a playmate, play baseball with her, help her bike riding, go skiing with her, whatever. Go bike, you know, there was different things, but we orchestrated that. So you have those debates, if inclusion. You have these people are saying inclusion is the way to go. That's the way to go. And then you have other people, they're saying, no, 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 that's not the way to go. And there's all kinds of studies that go on. And so I think at the end of the day, uh, people ultimately have to make their own decision. What I would like to see is that people are given the freedom to make their decision. And then that's okay. That, you know, you make your decision. I make my decision. And we can still live in peace, even though we don't agree. Can we just agree to disagree? You know, that old saying. There's so much in that, though. And, and I feel like, given the last two years, we've thrown that saying out the window. It's like, no, nope, you got to believe in what I believe. Either way, you got to go this way, you got to go that way. And, and it's, what is it causing? Division. That's it. Division. Divisive, divisiveness. And, and I don't think that we as humans are meant to be divided. You know, uh, I, I'm cautious about that idea. I, I feel, you know, we've all heard 
I'm not a I'm not an ultra historian, but we all know the saying divide and conquer. Everybody knows that. So where's that coming from? Where is that? Why is that even happening? Uh, I don't intuitively, uh, it doesn't resonate for me that um, we as a species should be divided at this time. I feel uh, that really, truly given, you know, our climatic situation and, and so forth, that we as a species need to come together and, and, and work together and listen to each other. And, and, if, and if people like Julianne don't even have the capacity to have a voice, sit with them, like you said, sit with them. And this woman who wrote uh, The Stroke of Insight, she recommended that too. She's like, please, you know, remember that there's still a human in there. Even if they have a stroke, they're still aware on some level you know, to, to, to sit with them and, and by, you know, our brains coming together. I don't know if you've ever done meditation with a group or, you know, there seems to be this collective when there's a collective coming together and you have an intention of being a loving being, there's some potency that gets brought into that space, whether you're speaking or not, you know, so I'm not sure if I answered the question, but uh, that those would be my final thoughts for this evening. Wonderful. Well, again, thank you for your time. And uh, we would love for you to uh, keep updating us on different uh, projects and uh, possibilities out there. Um, we, uh, we have some friends in Canada that, that are advocating for the Native community over there. So awesome. maybe, um, I don't know how much you're involved politically, but... Um, we, we want to get like a good picture of what's going on in, in North America because, again, sometimes stuff is hidden and, and it doesn't come out uh, or the politicians play a lot of games. So I'm glad that there's resources for kids with special abilities. But um, here in, in the U.S., it seems like it's all driven by uh, racism or um, certain agendas. And the more diverse the state, the more resources are available and the less diverse uh, well it's actually strange in Tennessee um, since the minority population is so low there's actually free medical care for the children and and I'm like how is it that they were able to pass that at um, there and then in Texas we can't get anything passed so there's countless children that have no medical health care at all or if they have it, it's only emergency care um, when they have to have emergency Medicaid. Uh, so we can talk about advocating for all kinds of people with health concerns uh, later on. But again, um, it's, it's one, one um, challenging thing at a time. And I'm glad that you and your supporters have um, strided uh, and made a lot of uh, good headway in advocating for the community with autism. Thank you so much, David, for having me. And I, I, I'm definitely um, a supporter and an like I absolutely would love to help your friends. So if you can send me that information where they are, um, that would be great as well. 
and uh, thank you for doing what you're doing because again see i would not be doing this because this is not my forte is setting this up and putting it on spotify and all these things that's not that i pull my hair out when i have to do stuff like that so bless you and for all the other things that you do i know uh, all the the work you do with people and and that um, special time particularly when people are leaving the planet um you know, but maybe that's just one last thing uh, I want to share is is a thought that I, I heard through a woman uh, named Jacqueline Hobbs. And it really made sense to me was, uh, you know, we're dying every day. Like, you know, this conversation we had an hour ago is already done. You know, Deepak Chopra, I, I listened to him recently and he talked about it's it's done. You know, that that 50 minutes ago, it's over. It's a death. In a sense, it's finished. It's a movie is ended. We've walked out of the theater. And so we, we really only have the present. And so I really encourage every listener to really, you know, be in your present moment and, and dream your dreams from your present moment and never give up. Those, you know, those are my uh, beliefs. And uh, thank you so much for having me. And yeah, we'll, we'll keep in touch for sure.